subatomic gigantic occasion was a sweep in Japan nation when along came a dude with an ultra attitude, a common Morado, the greatest kicker of Japan. And of all man. Last you short now, baby. To not talk big now, baby. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to a brand new episode of Kaiju Conversation. I'm your host, Elijah, and joining me as always, my lovely co-host and editor. Hello, I am Rex. And we are back at it again here in September. It's a little bit slow over a month, but honestly, I'm kind of happy about that because it's been crazy. Yeah, last month was long, and there were some long episodes too. <laughs> yeah, what? but what's weird is, so like the the month wasn't long like it, it went by very fast but towards the end there it did kind of slow down it kind of came to a screeching halt hmm honestly yeah it, it wasn't as long as july though july was an extraordinarily long month july was july dragged so we're into the ninth month rex which is terrifying yeah we we've been at least godzilla is here to support us godzilla is here to support us minus one by the time this episode's come out we've got another trailer and literally just before we started recording a teaser another teaser just showed up out of the blue and we love that that's Mm. what we like to see Mm. we love fun surprises we do we do so you know we'll I'm sure we might end up doing a bonus episode or something on on minus one's new trailer or something. We'll Ooh. see. Um, because the the Yamazaki hype is real, but no, we're we're back at it again, and you know it's this month is a little slower. We're kind of taking a little easy this month, but mm-hmm. needless to say, yeah, that won't last for long. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know what's coming. You have no idea what's coming. (laughs) But it's going to send us back to the Stone Age. The marketing for 2014 was astonishing. It was pretty banging. Just saying. But, you know, speaking of banging, how's your your day been? How's your life going? It's been pretty good so far, you know. Having having a bit of a chill, extended weekend, but... Unfortunately, next week's probably going to get a bit more hectic, shall we say? Yeah. What, <laughs> uh, what, you know, what's anything exciting happened? Did you go, you know, see anything or have you watched any tokusatsu lately? Hmm. Well, you mentioned going and seeing anything. And, you know, I actually very recently watched Shin Ultraman again on the big screen. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> so how this was your first time seeing it in theaters, right? Yes. How was that experience? It's so I the best way to sum up my thoughts on that is incredible movies are made even better when seen on the big screen. That that's all I can really say to sum it up. It's just it's marvelous really to see it <laughs> well that's i'm i'm happy because i got to see it 
I saw it twice in theaters. Mm. Now, did you get to see it subbed or dubbed? Subbed. There's okay. no dub option here. Oh, that's kind of disappointing. They were new, they were definitely like newish subtitles, but like it's obviously it's like the same subtitle script. It's just like the way they've been formatted are slightly different. Okay. One interesting detail I noticed was that so you know how like the Shin Godzilla title comes up like Ultra Q where it's doing like the painting swirl effect. Yes. Yeah. So for on this. When I saw it, they actually, for the subtitle of the Shin Godzilla title, they actually did the swell effect for the subtitle too, which was kind of neat. Over the Shin Godzilla title or no, below? No, no, no. So, like, so like just below. It's to like oh. the little subtitle for it had the swell effect too. Interesting. It wasn't like color, a color swell or anything. It's just the text swelling a little. But I thought it was a really nice detail. Yeah, that's you don't really see that a lot where where companies will like animate the subtitles. No, that's something I've I don't think I've ever really seen unless it's like a subtitle that's like integrated into the film itself like in the John Wick movies. Right, right. Huh. Yeah. So that was pretty Interesting. neat. Interesting. Granted it was kind of weird when when the Shin Ultraman a special effects fantasy popped up, it the subtitles only said a special effects fantasy and didn't show the Shin Ultraman part of the title, but what That was because you were expected to know what Ultraman right. like Yeah. You're supposed to understand Japanese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The distributor expects you to be smart. Yeah, but unfortunately you can't you can't always guarantee that with some audiences. Well, Oh, they took a gamble. Now, this was through Madman, correct? Yes. Okay. And you've got the Blu-ray coming out. Is it October? Yeah, October 4th, I believe, is the release date of the Blu-ray. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So that's like a, two months from now? No, actually, like a month Less from now. Less than a month. Yeah, yeah. Just over that's... a month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I just heard that Cleopatra, after this, because it's Labor Day weekend, oh, <laughs> there's the dating, <laughs> the 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 charade of, of when this episode was recorded is no longer, it's screwed. Well, as, well uh, when we mentioned minus one, it was very made Oh, clear. that's true. Well, maybe we can say that we're going through time portals, and that's why we're, uh, we've, we're talking like some things happened and some things didn't. You know what? Sure. Yep. We're in a time tunnel. But uh, um, I actually just read that the third replacement disc version is going to be sent out uh, at the end of this week. Oh, damn. Uh, or at the end of this weekend. That's when they're going to start uh, sending them out, which... Finally. I also heard that they're not going to send the replacement discs to the people that already got replacement discs. Bro. So if you want the one without the artifacts and proper subtitling, you're going to have to, like, buy a whole new one. Bro. <laughs> so Cleopatra has screwed up once again. <sighs> I'll just wait till I find out what's wrong with this release and then I'll determine whether or not yeah. I'm buying it or not. 
Yeah. Man, I think you're just better getting the Mad Men Blu-ray. We'll see what comes first, because I might order that. If if your Mad Men release has Shin Ultra Fight, that might be a huge selling point. Oh, I hope it does. They, don't, they haven't listed any bonus features yet, but I'm hoping there'll be at least something. Right, right. Or at least the dub. Yeah. I mean... They never included the Shin Godzilla dub, so it wouldn't shock me if that's not included. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Mm. So, beyond Shin Ultraman in theaters, have were you able to watch anything else, Rex? Oh, yes, actually. I have finished two Kamen Rider shows this week. Oh? Yes, I finished Kamen Rider Agito. Right. And also Common Rider Geet since that finished up last last week. Oh. So how were both of those and then where would you put them in your ranking for Common Rider episodes? Uh oh god, where in the ranking? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would definitely put a Gito on the high end. Geets, I would say, is is a good show. There's a lot of things I like in Geats, but I feel like it kind of peaks a bit in the... It peaks in the middle, roughly around the middle, and kind of loses a bit of steam and the writing quality goes down a bit. But it's still overall quite a fun season, even if the final villain sucks. <laughs> mm. but yeah, no, Agito, Agito was really good. I... It's kind of sad to be done with both, since I really like both the casts of both shows. And like Agito, honestly, I feel like I feel like it could have honestly gone on a couple more episodes, to be honest. <laughs> really? It, yeah, it kind of left me, and I mean that in a good way. Like it, it's 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 good. I'm very satisfied, but you you're kind of left wanting a little more, you know. And that's for Agito, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would still love to see more of Agito's cast, and I'm glad that there's that. Like, pretty much as soon as the show finished, they announced like the they announced like a V Cinema special coming out next year. <laughs> and so, will that be the actual conclusion of the show? Well, the show's had its conclusion. It's just like. The V cinemas are sort of like extra side content, and so this mm -hmm. next one's like going to be set after. And I think it's going to focus on Kamen Rider Buffer, who's like my favorite character in Geats. So you know, plus plus for me. Okay, interesting, interesting. I you know again, I wish I could comment more, but my my knowledge of a common of a writer is. Lackluster. Lackluster, to say the least. But did you watch any Tokusatsu? Um, some. I watched some. Mm. So, was that all you watched? Oh, I did also watch the first episode of Ring, the final chapter. Nice! How How is, I mean, obviously you're only on episode one, so you don't really have a good read, but mm -hmm. how is that? 
quite interesting, actually, in the sense of it's so far looking to be possibly the the adaptation to diverge the most from the book, seemingly. Interesting, okay. So it's it's the most original? Yeah, because I mean... I mean, there's a couple things that are more accurate to the book than, say, like the Nakata film and the American remake, with the main character Asakawa being a, a man named Kazuyuki. Uh huh. And there's a couple, there's like one or two scenes from the book that one in the '98 film that are present here. But at the same time, some of those scenes have been changed, and like. The rules of the tape have actually been changed to instead of it being like seven days, it's actually thirteen days. Oh, so yeah. almost double. Yeah. Is that there's some, too? There's some things that are like seem to be like inspired by the ninety eight ninety eight movie with like Asakawa's child being named a psychic, bo- a seemingly psychic boy named Yoichi. I don't know if he actually is psychic, but that's kind of. It feels I feel like that's what was implied. And then weirdly enough, there there's a character from Spiral as well. <laughs> huh. So I'm very I'm very curious to see where it I'm very curious to see where it'll go with some things. Right. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's so far there's been a lot of changes. Even some characters like the body count has been increased with like the guy. You know the guy at the cabin that gives Asakawa the tape in, like, the night film? Yes. Yeah, so, like, that scene is pretty close to what happens, relatively close to what happens in the novel, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, in this film, like, A, the tape is just, like, a, a music video, which is kind of lame. But, oh. B, the the guy who, like, gave Asakawa that tape who was running the place, that guy watched the tape and has died as well, you know? Oh, really? So yeah. they're they're making it out to be more deadly than... Yeah, seemingly. And Ryuji is definitely a bit different. Mai Takano is, like, has, like, mental health issues and a, a character who's pretty minor in, like, the first film, but it's kind of significant in the novels. Yoshino has been gender swapped as well. And the character that's brought in from Spiral has also been gender swapped too, which is interesting. So, so far there's quite a lot of changes, (laughs) but honestly, I'm kind of for it just because like, I have seen like, I've experienced the story of ring in like five or six different forms and like, right. I've rewatched the first ring like three or four times within like since last year. So honestly, I'm all for a new, a, a new and interesting telling of the story. Okay, so it's proving to be worth a watch, is what I'm mm-hmm. hearing. It's definitely interesting. I, I'm, I'm very curious to see where it'll go from. And how many episodes are there? I believe there's 12. 12? Okay. Yeah. Huh. This will... I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear what, what you think of this as as And I'll probably watch the Spiral show after as well, which I'm very, very curious about as well. 
Is it a direct sequel? Like, are they linked? Um, I don't know. I, I, the way it sounds to me is that they might not be, but I'm not entirely sure. Okay. And that, and it, again, I'm really curious about, like, there's just a character in the first episode of Ring, the final chapter, that is a gender-swapped character of someone in Spiral. I mean, unless it's just meant to be like a coincidence that the the two doctor, like the doctor Miyashita from Spiral has the same name as this woman named Miyashita in, in what you call it, final chapter. Like maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't know. Right. Okay. Well, that's, I'll be curious to hear what you think of that mm. as the time goes on. So what have you watched? Well, I've watched a little bit, uh, <laughs> uh, more so than, than normal, but we also had, like, twice the time. That's so, so true. for this week, I actually watched a little bit more of uh, the, the Japanese horror side of, of tokusatsu. Oh, good. As um, everyone should. Last time, I believe I brought up Inugami, which was mm-hmm. a Katakawa Shoten production from the late 90s. I also watched another one from Karikawa called Shikoku, which was inter- it was like a love story. Mm-hmm. Um, it had an Im- interesting premise, but to be honest, as it continued on, it was a little it was a little boring. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't a huge fan of the story and where it went. I see, but I mean, I still have. I got it in a box set of four with Inugami, so I still have two more. So we'll see how those two end up. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, Inugami was my favorite, um, mm-hmm. simply because of how it portrayed the supernatural elements. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, what Rex, you, is this? Uh, it's called the Kata, uh, Katakawa Horror Collection. It's got four movies from Katakawa. Um, I believe they range from 1998 all the way to 2001. Um, they're just kind of like these. I think they were V. I think they were straight to like video. Video. I think. Okay. Um, though Toho, I believe the logo for Toho appeared on uh, Shikoku, so perhaps oh. it got some some releases theatrically. Mm. Maybe. But besides that, um, Rex, you brought up how you watched Meatball Machine, and yes. that led me to want to go grab it. So I actually bought Meatball uh-huh. Machine, and uh, I watched that, and then I watched the 95 short film, and then I also watched the sequel short film, Machine uh-huh. Meatball Machine Reject or Death. <laughs> um, that was an interesting short film. The short film Reject or Death was not what I was expecting. That was a little weird. Um, the ninety five. <laughs> I, I just remember. Sh- I just remember like the chain that like shoots, like the grappling hook chain that shoots out into the guy's face and rips it yeah. open. <laughs> yeah, there was some was weird crazy. elements. There was there was some really weird elements. Um. Now, the 95 short film also had weird elements, but I was kind of okay with that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of nice to, I mean, it was obviously low budget, so I could right. appreciate it for being a low budget short film, you know. 
I I didn't really have any gripes with it. And honestly, like the the full length, like larger budget adaptation was pretty pretty true and honest to yeah. to that short film. And I mean, the effects looked great. Um, I mean, Amamiya was partly behind it, so you know. this is true. This is true. He was behind it partially. <laughs> and honestly, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, you told me that it was more of a romance than, than like a body uh, gore movie. And you were really right. I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. So, no, I enjoyed that. Um, but my next film I didn't enjoy as much. It's called New Marie, uh, the book of the new spawn, which is like this. This was a GP museum straight to video horror movie mm-hmm. um gp museums the one behind like zombie self-defense force cat girls and super dimensional odyssey trita uh killer bees and whatnot and they're mm-hmm. always bad they're like mm-hmm. really awful numeri was huh how unfortunate <laughs> yeah so like numeri was actually pretty well made but that didn't it, it was still lacking Mm-hmm. Um, when I say pretty well made, I mean for like what it was, because in all honesty, they didn't really, they're just, so they're about like 60 to 70 minutes. So they're, they're not super long, mm-hmm. right? but they're very, very boring. Mm-hmm. And that's my biggest problem is there are moments where it's like, oh my God, it's dragging. Like, just move on. And, you know, Numeri definitely has that. Not nearly as much, but it also just, I mean, these these don't have good characters. There's not a lot to them. Um, This one was like a mad scientist experiment gone awry story. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it was pretty predictable and, and it ended pretty well how you would expect for a typical mad scientist movie to end. I mean, there's there's not really a lot more I can say at the time being, but I also finally picked back up on watching the Takashi Miike trilogy of Dead or Alive movies. I oh, watched yeah. the Dead or Alive 2 Birds, which was less sci-fi than the first one. It was more of like a drama heart to heart, which was kind of nice. It was nice to watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious because these are none of these are connected. They're all just like under the name Dead or Alive, Dead or Alive 2 and Dead or Alive 3. So, huh. and, you know, they're not connected, but I enjoyed this one. It wasn't nearly as good as that first one. The first one, I mean, the first three minutes of Dead or Alive is is arguably some of my favorite moments in, in Japanese cinema when it comes to uh, when it comes to the score. Uh, that first one had the music composed by uh, Koji Endo, mm-hmm. whose music was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Koji Endo actually did The Great Yokai War 2 Guardians, um, he also worked with uh, Miike on, on Zebraman and Izo and Gozu, First Love, Full Metal, Yakuza, One Miss Call. Basically all of Yamazaki, uh, not Yamazaki, all of Miike's films, um, this guy's worked on. Uh, he also did like One Miss Call Final and Tomie Replay. 
Um, I'm sure you know those. So, but no, his his music for Dead or Alive was that first three minutes is is wild, but I love it. Hmm. I definitely need to give it a watch sometime. <laughs> I would recommend it. I would recommend it. If not for just watching show Arikawa, uh, hmm. be show Arikawa. Oh, he's great. And and the few movies I've seen him in, he's 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 a delight. <laughs> what what have you seen him in? I've seen him in well the main film I remember him from is Zebra Man. But I've also mm-hmm. seen him in like I've seen him in Garo. I've seen him in played a vil- the villain in Tiger Mask. And he had a small role in Pulse as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he was in that for a couple scenes. I forgot about that. Yeah, he's not in very much of the movie. He's only in like he's only in like one or two scenes in the middle. Right. I'm looking here at his filmography. He was also in Tokyo Zombie and Gozu. Um he's which been I haven't in a seen lot of, those. Uh, he's been in like a whole like series of like V cinema films from like Kiyoshi Kurosawa's early career, like the Suit Yourself or Shoot Yourself series. Interesting, interesting. So yeah, I mean I just I love his presence. So hmm. seeing him is always just it's it's always good fun. It's always oh, good fun seeing him. <laughs> But I also watched a movie called Red Tears, which we talked about this movie like months ago because I was like, they're really highlighting the actor on the on the front of this disc. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why, because I didn't recognize him. And his name was uh, Yasuki Karata, which he's worked on a common writer. He's a. He's a very well-known actor for uh, action films. Oh, wow. He, so, like, I'm I'm looking here to see what he did real quick. To, like, his, his face looks familiar. So he was in Bokenger, the, the movie. He was in the Bokenger movie. He was in Blood, the Last Vampire, Red Tears, and then when it comes to... Oh! He was in Gar. Oh, he was Sonshi in Garo. Garo Yamio Terasumono. Oh my! I okay. I I know now. I know now. <laughs> so, yeah, he's he, he's like a recurring villain in that show. And I thought he was going to be the. So what's what's interesting is Red Tears was actually produced by Karada's company. It was oh, basically wow. just is, a um... movie. According to Wikipedia, he was close friends with Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah, because they worked together uh, in Hong Kong action movies, if I recall wow. correctly. So known yeah, for it was an extended battle against Jet, Jet Li as well. God damn. Yeah, hmm. and so he his his company produced Red Tears, which I really was surprised by. And what surprised me more was the movie. Do you do you care for minor spoilers? Go ahead. Um, it's it's not a lot. It and I think I've told you this before. So while watching it, they in the subtitles they were saying that there's a monster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but 
what they were saying was a bakemono. And when mm. I heard bakemono and they were translating it as monster, I was like, wait a minute. That's that's not that's not in, in Japanese. That's not what monster is. And I was like, I've heard of a bakemono. What is that? And I found out it's a yokai. So Red Tears is actually a yokai vampire movie. It's got yokai elements of, of the bakemono, and it has the bakemono, and then it also has vampiric uh, characters in it as well, which was really cool to see. I, I, would, I wasn't expecting that. So for me, it was like, that's really cool. And then besides that, I finally watched one of Shutsuke Kaneko's Death Note movies. I watched the first one. Oh, nice. And so I actually like the 2017 Adam Wingard one. I didn't have any gripes with it. <laughs> but now I understand why everybody hates it, because that movie compared to Kaneko's version is, like, really stupid. Uh-huh. The the Kaneko Death Note movie is really smart on its writing and it's it's very intricate intricate. Mm. And I, I was mean, I honestly seen, I haven't seen the Kaneko films, but from I never did finish Death Note, but I saw I want to say like the first like ten or so episodes. Mm-hmm. And it's a really like it's a really like engaging and series, especially in terms of its writing with like the battle between the mental battle between Light, Yagami, and L. It was, I was honestly, like, watching the movie, mm-hmm. knowing, like, my, my only understanding of this franchise was the Adam Wingard movie. I was, like, shocked at how much, because the first movie's, like, two hours long. It's, like, two mm-hmm. hours and, like, 20 minutes long. It's a long movie. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! And it's it ends on a cliffhanger. Like it was obvious that Kaneko was going to do a sequel, much like how Yamazaki did Parasite Part One and Parasite Part Two, right? Yeah. So going into this, knowing that there's not only going to be a sequel, but there's a third one and a fourth spinoff movie, mm-hmm. I was like, and I think there's even a miniseries connected to all of these as well. I think that's I what think that's Death a Note remake, thing. but I could be wrong. I could be wrong on that. Because I know we've talked about it's Death Note the New Generation, correct? Yeah, something like that. I'm checking here. Uh, it is a sequel to the 2006 film Death Note 2, the last name, and a predecessor okay. to Death Note Light Up the New World. Mm-hmm. So, so, so four movies in a, TV, in a miniseries then. So like they, there is a lot to this series in right. this franchise. I mean, one of them was direct. I mean, one of them was directed by Nakata. Nakata Shinsuke Sato, right? Because Nakata did light up. Uh, Nakata did L the last name. Yeah, and then Kaneko did the first two movies, mm-hmm. and then Sato did the light up the new world movie. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm I I need to get light up the new world. That's the only one I'm missing, but I'm really curious oh, to no see way. how. Lead actor from Ultraman Max appears in Light Up the New World. <laughs> also, apparently, there's a a short film called Matsuda spinoff. Oh wow! So, so even so more. You have, <laughs> so you have two movies, then a short film that's 16 minutes long. Then you have the 
miniseries, or then you have all the change of the world, Death Note New Generations, the miniseries that ran for a grand total of three episodes at 20 minutes apiece. So it's another hour of content. Mm-hmm. And then you had Death Note light up the new world. Oh, so L Change the World was was the third movie and Light Up the New World was oh, the And then and then there's a twenty fifteen like a new show that's unrelated to any of these movies. Gotcha. Okay. I was getting I was confusing that with the with like the miniseries. Gotcha, gotcha. And like so that's that's a lot of movies and like a, like that's that's four movies, a short film and a miniseries to cover the show and Wingard tried to do that in like a two hour movie. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So like it's now I, under, I, I understand now why fans were like the Netflix death note movie is awful. Cause it doesn't understand death note. And it's like a basic it, it, like interpretation of this, the show. Mm-hmm. I totally get it now. Cause there's, <laughs> I mean that first movie alone had like, it juggled way more than that entire Netflix movie did. <laughs> it was it was insane. But beyond that, I also watched this isn't Kaiju or Tokusatsu or Giant Monsters, but I did watch The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which oh, was nice. a really cool monster movie. Mm-hmm. Um I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, yeah, I had a decent time with it. I I definitely want to watch more vampire movies, but I have plenty of uh of Japanese ones to catch up on. <laughs> you got you should check out. Have you seen the original Nosferatu? I have I haven't. So here's full like when it comes to like Dracula vampire movies. Besides what Scooby Doo vampire movies there are, <laughs> my my understanding of vampire movies in the west is house of frankenstein and the monster squad (laughs) right i see (laughs) i i haven't watched nosferatu i haven't watched any of the lugosi dracula movies or any of the like lon cheney dracula movies oh and i've seen uh abbott and costello meet frankenstein in the wolfman because (laughs) his dracula appears in that one as well Okay. And if you want to count Mad Monster Party, I've seen that. But that's it. Like I'm I am very much not well. Dracula's the only one that I haven't watched. I've watched a lot of werewolf movies, not mm-hmm. not a, like all of them by any means, but I've seen I've seen a fair few of of the classic ones and some of the modern ones. Um, right. I haven't seen like American Werewolf in London yet. I know I need to. But What's weird is so like when it comes to those classic universal monsters, Creature from the Black Lagoon is my most well acquainted one. I've watched uh I've watched all three creature movies, and then I've watched Monster Squad. And then Frankenstein's probably the follow-up, followed by Invisible Man, and then Wolfman, and then Dracula. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of put together where, like, how many I've watched in 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 context of that. I've I've watched most of the Frankenstein movies, none of the Hammer. I haven't touched Hammer horror movies at all. 
So I'm I once I get off my Tokusatsu kick, I might want to turn around and go for some some Universal monster movies. Mm. Admittedly, my experience with Universal horror is pretty pretty lacking, but I have at least seen the original. Well, not made by Universal. I have seen the original Nosferatu at least. I also need to watch The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah, I've been meaning to put that on for a while. <laughs> there's there's a handful of those like early sci-fi horror movies that I need to watch, like Metropolis and uh Metropolis, The Lost World, I haven't sat through yet. Um Lost World's good. And then like Nosferatu. So that's honestly that's all I've watched. Um hmm. it was more than usual, but I could I could have probably watched more. Yeah, as always. So why are we here? I don't know. I was kind of just held against my will. Me too. Yeah, same. We should just leave this joint. I, you know, they say that it's not safe to leave. Oh. Well. I think we're going to be stuck in here for a few years. Well. Okay. Well, you know, I did... You know, last night, this isn't really a Japanese film, but I did watch a little movie called Ten Cloverfield Lane. Have you seen that before? I believe so. Oh, good. Let's talk about it for the next hour or so. Okay, so it sounds like today, listeners, we are going to be covering Ten Cloverfield Lane. So where do you want to start with this one, Rex? Well, I think we should probably start with, you know, what what is this little Cloverfield sequel we've got here? Right. So do we start up? So for anybody who hasn't been, hasn't listened to us before, right now, every September, we do cover a Cloverfield movie. So last year, around this time, we covered Cloverfield 2008. Mm-hmm. And do we just pick up where that one left off with Cloverfield 2 and, and that development? I mean, okay, so for those who might not be terribly familiar with Cloverfield, which hopefully isn't a lot of you, but, you know, never know. Cloverfield was like a 2008 giant monster movie that was what what set it apart from most films in the genre was the fact that it was filmed in a found footage style. Right. And it was influenced directly by 911. Mm-hmm. And it was produced by JJ Abrams, who yes. kind of came up with the whole idea after visiting Japan. Yes. And so 10 Cloverfield Lane is not a giant monster movie. It's not even a found footage movie. <laughs> no, it wasn't even originally. It wasn't even meant to be a Cloverfield movie. Right. In reality, it's just a spec script that was up for auction, writ penned by Josh Campbell and Matt Stukin, titled The Cell. Right. And so what spec scripts are, for anybody who doesn't know, they're basically these these like rough draft scripts mm-hmm. that writers will write and they'll just see who wants to purchase them. 
and the seller was one of the hot picks for for that year i believe 2013 2012 i want to say 2012 um it was put on market in well it was it was bought by paramount pictures in may of 2012 okay so it was put on the market in 2012 Mm -hmm. and like you said paramount purchased it and at the time paramount was working with bad robots um of course Which is they JJ had done, Abrams's company. Right. Um of course uh Bad Robot had worked with Paramount on Cloverfield, but more so than that, the highly successful Star Trek and Star Trek into the into darkness. Um Super 8 was another one that they worked on. I want to say Lost was also a Paramount production that um mm. I think I don't recall but basically what was going on was Paramount had the exclusive co-production rights to work with Bad Robot. Nobody mm-hmm. else did. Mm-hmm. In recent times, that has changed. That is now moved to Warner Brothers, where J.J. Abrams is now working with Warner Brothers on nothing because that yeah, deal has been a disaster. Was it, wasn't he hired? He, he, he started something to do with Batman and nothing's come out. Yeah, so basically, <laughs> what's funny is he was hired to basically the be the Kevin Feige, it sounds like. And then He's James doing a good Gunn job. came on, and now JJ's basically obsolete. And according to, like, insiders of the industry, Warner is very angry that they made this deal with JJ, because JJ has done nothing. Oh my god, I'm looking it up. It's apparently a it was a two hundred and fifty million dollar deal. <laughs> yeah. And nothing to my understanding, nothing's been done with it. No, there's only like Yeah, most of what I, most of the articles about it are like HBO Max X are like Warbuzz reportedly frustrated with lack of DC projects from JJ Abrams. Warner Brothers Discovery cancels another one of J.J. Abrams' DC projects. (laughs) And part of that was, so following the deal with, I mean, during the time of of Tin Cloverfield Lane's production, J.J. was working with Disney on writing, and I believe he was an EP as well, and directing Star Wars The Force Awakens. Mm -hmm. It was an EP. He was writing and he was directing. And the original plan was to have him do a new trilogy of films. Um, So following force awakens, he worked on 10 Cloverfield lane and then he was supposed to work on the last Jedi, but that didn't happen. No, (laughs) he ended up Disney replaced him for Ryan Johnson and he was just an EP on the film, Mm -hmm. but following Ryan Johnson's disaster of the last Jedi, JJ came back to write and direct Rise of Skywalker, which then took up a lot of his time. I believe that was in 2019, right? Has time served me right? Was that 2019? Well, it came out in 2019, yeah. Okay. So basically until 2019, Abrams was stuck working on Star Wars and trying to do Paramount projects as well. Mm -hmm. Um, He also worked on Overlord, which was a 2018 zombie movie, and a handful of other titles. At one stage was supposed to be a Cloverfield movie. See, I heard that was never confirmed. And I think we should explain why that's kind of a thing now. So following Cloverfield 2008, 
Matt Reeves and Drew Goddard did want to do a sequel. Mm-hmm. The yeah. idea was to do a premise of, you know, uh, alternative version of that night. Somebody else was recording the whole events and we were going to have another found footage movie with the monster action. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't get the script done properly. They couldn't figure out what they wanted to do. And as time kept dragging, five years after Cloverfield, you had 2013's Pacific Rim. And then the year after, you had Godzilla 2014. And then two years later, you had Kong Skull Island. So in in 2016... I mean, that was after this, (laughs) Kong Skull Island. Right, right, but... But that it's just going to add to my point here. So in 2016, when 10 Cloverfield Lane came out, Abrams went on to say that the ideas of an, a true Cloverfield 2 were basically dead in the water because the market had become oversaturated. There was too much in the market for them to really do anything. And I mean, that continued on because you had Skull Island, you had Ready Player One with Kong and Mechagodzilla appearing. You had mm-hmm. King of the Monsters. You had the Meg. You You've had got Space the Suicide Jam. Squad. <laughs> the Suicide Squad, GVK, um, the Meg 2, The Trench, Space Jam 2, A New Legacy. And you even had a film called Underwater, which was done by 20th Century Studios, that according to TJ Miller was supposed to be a Cloverfield movie, but nothing like actually was true about that. And mm-hmm. later there was an issued apology for for misleading the fans to think that underwater was a a (laughs) Cloverfield movie. (laughs) So I bring that up because yes, apparently overlord was supposed to be a Cloverfield movie, but I want to say the director said that that was never true Mm. because that was, that was so there was that. And there was another movie that people were dubbing Field of Clovers, um, both of which didn't actually become actual like Cloverfield movies. Mm-hmm. So let's see here. Here's a variety report about J.J. Abrams talking about Cloverfield. Um, and so what occurred during the promotion for Overlord when people were asking him if they were supposed to be if it was supposed to be the fourth uh Cloverfield movie that's when he did the uh, official announcement of Cloverfield 2.4 which has yet to be seen and we talked uh, about that actually last last time we covered a Cloverfield episode we were like well you know as we're recording this they just announced Cloverfield 2.4 so but nothing ended up uh happening yeah so at CinemaCon in 2018, Abrams denied that Overlord was supposed to be a Cloverfield movie. Okay. So, but what had happened is, so Cloverfield 2 had basically went on ice. And then Paramount, you know, as we've already established, picked up the spec script. And when they got it, they wanted to turn it into... So initially, the film was supposed to be directed by Damien Chazelle, who ended up being a writer on the project. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paramount bought it, handed it to Bad Robot, told them to do something with it. 
Damien came on to, he rewrote it and worked it into this new film, which during this process, he left the project to direct and write a big budget remake of a short film he did called Whiplash. Yeah. And so what happened is following this, they hired another writer, though uncredited. uh, Daniel Casey. Who rewrote the script. And when we talk about the movie, I have some notes on what was changed from that original script to to what we ended up having. And then they attached director Dan Trenchenberg. Trachtenberg. Trachtenberg. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then... They started development. Filming occurred in 2014. To be exact, it was October 20th, 2014 through December 15th of 2014. And following that, the film was in post-production all the way up till March 11th, 2016, really, when it came out in theaters. Now, when Dan got a hold of the script, it was already a Cloverfield movie. So they took the idea of the seller and just the way they the way Abrams explained it was it was like a Twilight Zone anthology series. Mm. And they noticed that in the seller there was a lot of thematics that were similar to Cloverfield. Not mm-hmm. necessarily visually but thematically. And they thought it would work as a good Cloverfield sequel. Not a true sequel, but in still a Cloverfield movie, almost like Which Cloverfield. Is why they didn't name it Cloverfield Two. Correct. It's almost like Cloverfield was a brand, not necessarily a franchise. Mm-hmm. Which led to a lot of fans being disappointed, and and led to further issues as as the brand continued to develop. Right, and now it seemingly is go is trying to ditched a sort of anthology Twilight Zone type deal by going back to the monster, seemingly. But it's also been doing that since the Paradox movie. Right, yeah. That, but Paradox kinda... is still most... It's, from what I understand, it's a standalone story for the most part. But it does connect to the other, yes. to this film in Cliffhill. Admittedly, so... haven't seen Paradox. Oh, okay, okay. I, I had not seen this film before either, for the record. Oh, okay. So this is my so, first seeing it. <laughs> good to know. So I guess a, another thing that this film shared is following up to the release of the film, there was an ARG out yes. using Tagarato and Slusho, those websites, but also one with called Radio Man... 170.com which forwarded you to this chat website where Howard would message his daughter Megan back and forth yeah uh, building up hype and clarifying and establishing things in the world of, of Cloverfield and that's one thing Cloverfield is very popular for is the ARGs linked to it there was a game that made you helped you find where the missing puzzle pieces that will bring up later are um howard specifically played by john goodman worked for the same company that the satellite from cloverfield 2008 
the satellite that fell was from the same company that Howard worked at. Even though they're not directly linked, they wanted to have some sort of multiversal crossover, I guess, kind of like how in some universes, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Dr. Strange or Patrick Stewart still plays Professor X or something (laughs) like that. I guess so. so. Certain things cross over into other universes. Mm -hmm. And that was how they were able to link it to Cloverfield without directly linking it, right? Yeah. I mean, was the whole multiverse thing really thought of by this movie's point in time? No. It was was all meant to be an anthology, but they wanted to find a way to link it up still and have it like a blood relative. And that's what they described it as was a blood relative. Mm. of the film yeah so how do you do you want to talk more about the production or do you want to dive into to this film i feel like this is a a good point to sort of transition to the film okay although one thing that i want to mention that i thought was an interesting anecdote is so that the majority of this film takes place in mostly one set so because of that most of the scenes in this film were actually shot in sequence which is pretty pretty rare for any film really yes (laughs) and that was something that the creatives behind the film decided to do not only because they could technically do that um due to the sets and what was permitted but also because they wanted the characters to develop on the spot. This movie has a lot of thought put towards it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of thoughts Mm -hmm. um, put into the production of this movie. It was entirely shot on a soundstage set in new Orleans with the bunker built uh, for the actors. Um, So the film starts off in a room in a city, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting is the establishing shot of the city is a still image that the VFX department animated to make it look like it was moving. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of cool secret VFX shots in this movie, much like how there was in Parasite, the Bong Joon-ho movie. Mm-hmm. So what I really liked is this opening for three minutes and 20 seconds there is no sound from the footage and that's really interesting yeah you just see a girl played by mary elizabeth winstead just frantically packing her bags and making a couple calls and leaving her home she gets you see her at a at a gas station filling up filling up a car where the first bit of actual diegetic noise appears with a truck pulling up. Correct. And seemingly watching her. That was, it's, it's very interesting how they, they started with that. They wanted to, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie in general, Mm. which is abnormal for a film that is, that is a drama. It's, it's a triad of characters and it's a drama, but they don't, there's not a lot said a lot of it's all through subtlety and -hmm. a lot of that's because of how tight of of a space they're in but before that i mean she's in a big open space 
So it was really interesting that they didn't start off with any voice, um, any speech, which that wasn't always the case. There was at one point plans to have her talk, but they felt like that kind of threw off the whole like flow of the movie. Mm-hmm. There I mean, was also and the the context of this opening has been completely changed since you know in this in the final film it's her like leaving her i want to say it's her husband or boyfriend i don't remember faith clearly established the relationship but it was a husband okay but yeah whereas in the original script she the character was meant to be a lot younger only being like 18 and was like leaving a party drunk after seeing her boyfriend cheat on her. I also read there. So there was other versions of the script mm-hmm. um, that explored the idea of her going and looking for her boyfriend or her husband, whichever one. Right. Um, there was the idea of she was on the search for him and that was going to be her entire like, reason for trying to escape later right but they ended up not liking that idea because it they like the idea of her being a fighter that was at first leaving walking away for from her problems and later on going towards her problems creating right. that character development so and and they didn't like the idea of she's doing all of this for a guy right she's they wanted to make her an independent woman and I think that was a great idea because I think her character is a very interesting character to follow along throughout Mm. this movie. Mm. And I think it's also worthy to note. So we brought up that it was all shot on the soundstage, Mm -hmm. but the scenes in the bedroom were actually one of the producer's offices at bad robots. Um, Come to find out, apparently Bad Robot Productions like to film in their office. So there are <laughs> scenes in from Star Wars movies that were shot in the Bad Robot building. Um, and for this one, they shot... Curious, uh, what scenes. <laughs> I am too. But for at least 10 Cloverfield Lane, the scenes in the bedroom were shot in the... Uh, in the office of Lindsay, uh, what's what's her last name? Hang on one second. Lindsay Weber. She was one of the producers on this film, and all of that was shot in her office. And then there's a few other moments in this movie where uh, it was in the bunker, but it was shot in the office. Or it was specifically the the car scenes where the car wrecks are happening. Some of those were shot in the offices. Um and and blue screened in later, right? <laughs> so I thought that was really cool, and the whole reason for stuff like this was they wanted to keep it a micro budget film. It only had a budget of fifteen million dollars, and it ended up making a hundred and ten at the box office. So it was a huge success, and and critics also really liked it as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was quite well received, and yeah. Did quite well. (laughs) So, like you said, she's at a gas station where we do get a slush show cameo. And the name of the gas station 
um, is a reference to some of J.J. Abrams' other projects. And the name, I believe it's Kelvin, is the name of the uh, in-house Bad Robot VFX company, Kelvin. Right. So it, it's all references to Bad Robot stuff. So when she gets back on the road, when Michelle gets back on the road, her husband, Ben, mm-hmm. calls her, voiced by Bradley Cooper, as a favor that J.J. Abrams uh, called in. <laughs> um, and, and Bradley Cooper quite literally just called in and, and gave some lines and called it a day. Um, Fair enough. Uh, so while she's listening to this guy talk, and after she's hung up, a truck hits her and she goes flying. And from this moment, we quickly jump into her waking up in this dark grungy bunker which is where we will spend the rest of our discussion basically in yeah yeah pretty much because from this point forth the vast majority of the film is set here certainly the next uh act or two (laughs) now i love so they spent a lot of time like doing all the details and the lighting in this on the set so it would look visually great and I really do love the visuals in this set. Like it's, I right. love specifically in Michelle's room where half the room is painted pink and the other half is not. You can tell there's a story to that. Yeah. And I love that. There's a lot of really interesting stories that you can see in this, in this bunker. I mean, one interesting thing as well that I want to point out about the, set design in this is that you know for the the vast majority of the bunker set is made entirely out of wood and like mm-hmm. in this sequence you see the walls behind Michelle they're seemingly concrete but in reality no it's just it's really well well-made, well-painted wood made to look like concrete. It's so speaking from, from the theatrical background, when we were doing some of our productions, I was genuinely surprised by how well uh, our set designers could get the wood because we, we had to use wood for our Mm -hmm. sets, right? Yeah. And some of it looked like, I, I know for one, we had to have brick walls and it looked like legitimate brick walls. Like it was very well done. It was very well made. And I was in complete and total awe that, that they were able to do something like that. Right. It's truly remarkable what you can do with wood. If you have the proper paint and you know how to shade and, and add texture because oh, yeah. that's all you need to, to basically create anything out of wood. Oh yeah. 100%. <laughs> And so right away, this movie, so the way they shoot this is very claustrophobic, very tight. You know, there's not a lot of space. And we get to see Michelle kind of go through a panic mode where she's trying to, you know, she's trying to, she realizes that she's been kidnapped and she's in, you know, bare minimum clothing. And she's trying to like get to her phone. She's chained to the wall with this knee brace around her knee and she can't get it off. 
Um, which during this, so this is something I also should say. During this, there is a shot of Michelle trying to like break off the brace. And I found out that that was something that J.J. Abrams specifically directed. So throughout this movie, there's moments where J.J. was directing and a lot of ideas came from J.J. So in a way, he was kind of ghost directing this film. But he was also letting his first time director, Dan Trackenberg, direct as well, because this was his first feature film. So prior to this, he'd only really done commercials and maybe a video game. I yes, film I think is what he did. Yes. So after she reaches her phone and she tries to, you know, get signal and try to contact people, but isn't able to because she's stuck underground. And then, and then the door in her room is unlocked. And a man steps in. She tries pleading, begging him to let let her go. You know, I I I won't say I won't tell anyone what happens if if you let me go. While well, he's just you know fixing all of like the like the IV bag and the medical stuff he's he's given her, all shown in sort of close up shots of his body, not. Re- not revealing his face, building up to the reveal of Mr. John Goodman. Which I do want to say John Goodman said in an interview that this was one of his most personal characters. Mm. Just in the way, like, he acts, I think. Not in the way he thinks, but in, in his mannerisms. He even went as far as to say he didn't really have to act. He was just basically playing himself. <laughs> Which, maybe he's a little crazy. <laughs> I, I'd i like to think the real John Goodman doesn't quite act 100% like Howard here. I would, I would hope so too. I hope he doesn't have a vat. <laughs> so, she asks, like, you know, this is where she's told that he's saving her life, which is going to be basically his argument for the rest of the film. Yeah. He gives but her some he crutches. It, he gives her some crutches, and he leaves it very ambiguous on what he means by that. Yeah. But following this, we get Michelle basically getting on her feet and, and trying to get ready to escape. She tries to plot an escape. Yeah. Turning one of the not the word. Crutches. Crutches. That's it. Turning one of the crutches into a makeshift stake and staking out, you could say, trying huh, to wait huh. for him. Funny. Yeah, funny. I'm hilarious. You're so funny. I know I am. But one thing I will say is throughout this movie, it's very obvious Michelle's not stupid because while she's staking out John Goodman's character, Howard, she also lights some clothing on fire and sets it in the air duct. Yeah. Which causes the fire alarms to go off and smoke to, mm. you know, formulate and, and, and fill the, the bunker. Yeah. Which leads attention. which leads him to rushing in where she tries to attack him only to fail. Yeah. He injects her with a needle and she wakes up back at the wall. Then probably the next day. 
Probably. So real quick, I do want to say that honestly, the intensity, and this is probably due to the claustrophobia, how it's shot, the music, all of that's very intense throughout this movie. There are a lot of moments that are very intense. And this was the first, you know, instance of that. And I'll make sure I want to make sure I highlight each time that I, mean, I, I feel the really... first, maybe not necessarily tension, but I feel like the first big moment is just the car crash at the I would agree. First scene of the film, like that was genuinely a really surprising moment. Like I knew going into this, she get she's going to get put into a bunker by John Goodman at some point. But I was like, I I kind of was thinking of the quote from Martin Scorsese on "You got to capture your audience's attention in the first five minutes," and you know, I feel like that is certainly a very successful way of doing that. <laughs> with that, that sudden unexpected car crash that in the lack of dialogue for the first three minutes and 20 seconds really like yeah lack it draws of dialogue you in and very like not redundant um what's the word like it i'm trying i'm looking for a word that's like minimal like sound other than really the music understated i guess would be the word i'm looking for where it's just kind of quiet and yeah, and then you just have the sudden minuscule, sure, something something along those lines, and then you just have the sudden crashing sounds and just the shock of a car crash. Right. No, the sound design in this movie is is brilliantly executed, even down to the sounds in the bunker and all the tiny stuff. Right. Um, which this is it's kind of funny that we're covering this movie now because that was something i did for my short film sos seek shelter was i tried to you know utilize sound design for for a lot of the situations going on which now that i think about it i guess both kind of share a similar plot idea (laughs) um but no the the sound design is very well done even down to like the sounds of the door Mm. that leads to michelle's little room is is horrifying Mm -hmm. um and i really like so there's a moment during this so following the needle michelle wakes up and howard explains a little bit more in detail what's going on right and during this scene there's a moment where howard's like standing in the middle of the room and his voice starts to echo like he's not mic'd up which I thought was a brilliant idea. I love that. I I was really surprised that they, they did that, where there was an echo. Like, it sounded like there was nothing in this room, so it was just this big, empty room that your voice would echo in. And for somebody like John Goodman, who has such a powerful voice, it absolutely would. Right. And And... You know, there's not a lot of moments like that in the film, but there are a lot of other tiny moments utilizing other sounds that I just thought was brilliant and, and honestly genius at some points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this scene, Howard explains to uh, protagonist Michelle that essentially he has saved her from quote, a massive attack finding her wrecked on the highway and saving her from this massive attack that's either been 
from the Russians or potentially even quote, the Martians. <laughs> right, right. Which there's some foreshadowing in this movie. This this is another example of a film that utilizes every line very well. Mm-hmm. Every line was was I guess rewritten with careful attention to detail and what would help Mm-hmm. pay off later on right which i thought was genius i think that's a great idea mm-hmm. yeah and this is where we essentially learn that howard is you know a doomsday conspiracy theorist with this being his underground bunker that he prepared in case of a situation like this right and during this whole sequence there starts to be sounds coming from outside the room of things falling. Yeah. Which Howard walks out and we hear more yelling from Howard and other bumps and clinks, which adds more intensity. And then Howard just comes back and is like, bye and, and, and shuts the door on her. And it's like, cause throughout this, you're basically seeing this guy who's kind of not together. Like he's not all mentally no. there. And, your power so Michelle thinks he's crazy, right? Michelle doesn't believe a word he's saying. Right. But he believes everything he's saying, and she's powerless to stop him. So you're basically watching I mean, you this movie has a lot in common with Split in that regards, is watching yeah. somebody like insane and you know they're insane. And I mean, both have the idea of catch- capturing a younger female and, and holding her captive in a building, right? Yeah. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but more so like just the fact that as you continue to go along with Michelle on this journey, you kind of find out he's not entirely wrong. Mm. But he is Which crazy. is the scarier part. He is crazy. So... A day or so goes by and Michelle leaves, wakes up and and finds the door open as she's. And so she leaves meeting our other character in our triad of main characters, Emmett. Yes. Who's the TJ Miller of this story and our comedic relief. Yeah. Even having a broken arm after just found lying down with a broken arm behind like shelves of food that he'd knocked over in the previous night when when she'd heard the banging and that Howard went to investigate earlier. And this is where she's echoed the same sentiment that Howard says about there being, you know, it's not safe to go outside and it's it's poisoned and toxic and all this. Mm-hmm. Which you can tell she's starting to wonder what exactly is going on. Right. But then, I, if I remember correctly, she asks him at the end of the scene why she knows this, or why he knows this, and then Howard magically appears and says, because I told her, him. Yeah. And then Howard shows them the rest of the bunker. Yeah, giving them a whole tour, and getting her to just, like, go, like... Go have a shower, go take a piss, go do everything you need to do. And just, yeah, showing her around the house or bunker. 
<laughs> and during this, you you hear him constantly say like, "My hospitality, my gratuity, like you're lucky, right. you're lucky. Look, you need to you need to take this piss now because you know you got we got to space these out evenly. Don't don't waste the flushes at the toilet. All that all that type deal." And it's in a way, I wonder if the reason they did that was to kind of give give Howard that like that trait of trying to what what's it what is that called when you try to convince somebody of something that's not actually true? Um what gaslighting? <laughs> I mean, yes, but there's there's an actual like when when somebody truly believes something um oh it's it's what kidnappers do stockholm syndrome yes that's <laughs> it and I, I in a way i wonder if they wrote howard to kind of do that emulate that where he's honestly just convincing them of this you know that they owe him their life and he's such a nice person and I everything mean, he says is right. Howard has, I mean, Howard's goal with Michelle isn't far off from that, to be fair. This is true. So, following this, I believe, doesn't it go to the dinner sequence? Well, first, Howard showed, because Michelle doesn't believe really That's anything right. that Howard's saying, he shows her that a look outside at his two pigs, which at one point were supposed to be practical stuffed uh, props, but they looked too fake. So JJ told him to do CGI, which is what they ended up doing. Right. During this, she also notices Howard's truck as well, and regains a bit of memory of seeing a similar truck swiping and hitting her car but she keeps that to him to herself but she's also clearly distraught mm -hmm. yeah which she then tells emmett i believe if i am i remembering correctly she after yeah. howard shows shows her she then tells emmett how this is all a lie and that she was abducted and howard's a crazy person and emmett explains that he knows Howard and and he helped him build this and he saw a bright flash of light and that the end of the world has come. Yeah. In a way it almost seems like Emmett has become just a like submissive person to Howard. Right. But also Emmett had to go through all this stuff so maybe he it's probably one of those things where, like, you know your friend's crazy, but you know they also have some valid points, perhaps? Right. And then only after living with them do you realize that it was a mistake to, to do that. <laughs> Speaking of living with Howard, this is where we go to the dinner scene. Which, a lot of major events happen at the table. Mm-hmm. Or at a table. When when the meeting of the family in air quotes happens, that's when a lot of things occur. Mm. So 
do you want to explain what exactly happens in this scene? I mean, essentially, John Goodman is stealing the entire show from this point. <laughs> yeah, during the dinner scene, um, what's his name? Emmett tries, you know, making some small talk conversation, which it aggravates Howard. Howard tells him to just shut up, but has, Emmett still continues to have a bit of a back and forth with Michelle, which ends up enraging Howard to the point that he's like, I see what you're trying to do here. Stop doing that. You Submit I, to me. Stop that. I know what a traitor looks like. I think, so real quick, I one thing to also clarify during this scene is Michelle is the one that starts antagonizing because Emmett, once he's told to shut up, he does shut up. Mm -hmm. But Michelle sees this as a prime opportunity to get the keys that is on his right. waist. So Michelle's the one that starts bringing up small talk, and Emmett clearly is, like, uneasy about doing this, but he still does it after she tries two or three times to get him to talk. So he mm -hmm. starts responding, and then she starts asking for stuff, and then what was earlier established about no touching, she then acts right. upon that and touches Emmett, which is what sets Howard off. Right, yeah. Which, again, becomes a very intense moment because John Goodman is, is this huge, powerful bear that will rip your face <laughs> off. I mean, his performance in this is brilliant. Like, one minute he can seemingly, later on at least, he can seemingly be like a sort of kind-hearted-ish individual, but you've always, there's always this uneasiness in his performance where any moment, even when he's being kind, he could just completely switch to this absolutely demented monster, essentially. And this this is one of those scenes because even during the small talk, uh, Emmett says that it was the best sauce for uh, spaghetti he had ever had, and right. Howard and took that like, as sarcasm. Like, you want to? Are you insulting me? And this is where Emmett says, "Well, in all fairness, like." world's ruined and and this is all we have so like at this point anything is is the best right. and instead of like snapping on him he's like you have a point and leaves it at that like he agrees which is mm -hmm. almost scarier that he's agreeing than disagreeing mm. and you know just a few seconds later he blows up right so it yeah he he's a ticking time bomb yeah now, during this sequence, Michelle is able to finally get the keys that she's been trying to get the whole time and has access to an empty bottle that was, you know, what they were drinking out of mm. and smashes it over the top of Howard's head, knocking him back. And Emma tries, tries to make her escape. And Emma tries to stop her, but what's funny is Howard doesn't even want Emma trying. So, like, yeah. Howard tips over the family heirloom that he told them to be careful about <laughs> to prevent him from being able to touch her or stop her, which is such a, it's a very brief moment, but it's really interesting that they, like, they put that in there for a reason, right? Right. And I thought that was really cool. 
Mm-hmm. So Michelle makes a break for the door and gets past the first door and is standing in what is supposed to be the makeshift airlock. Yeah. For her in the outside world. Uh-huh. Howard eventually gets up to the window where we then are introduced to the next intense moment in this film. Yeah. Michelle's desperately trying to unlock the unlock the door, noticing a car outside, which she they'd heard previously, and just being absolutely desperate. But then as she tries to unlock the door, a woman appears. She's trying to get into the bunker with them. Rather than helping Michelle escape, this woman wants desperately wants to get in. And her face is also messed up and you know covered a bit in blood as well and during this whole sequence so in so this was actually reshot so mm-hmm. in the original version michelle was just going to be like nope i'm good like you look messed up i don't know what's going on but in the reshoots michelle does have kind of this moral back and forth of what do i do do i help right. the lady or do i escape or what do i do Right. Which, honestly, honestly, for me, this scene gets really intense when Lindsay, which is the name of the of the, the person, I believe, that is outside the, the airlock. Leslie, Leslie, when she is begging to come in and Michelle's like debating on it and she snaps and's like and, and calls her the B word mm. like. At that moment, you like for me, it was like this sense of dread because then she starts banging on the window with her head, leaving blood on the on the window and and freaking out. And it's pretty intense. And it's so intense that Michelle ends up backing up to Howard's corner. Yeah. Which, you know, she's finding more comfort in being near him than the outside, which speaks loud to the actions that just occurred. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) and so we cut to her back into her room howard is replacing some lights and this is where howard actually admits to the fact that he had it was his truck that had knocked her off the road saying that he claiming that he was in a rush he knew something was about to happen and that he was in a rush to get back home and that he was driving like hit her and then he also gives her some a new pair of clothes that used to be his daughter megan's which this begins the questions of john goodman's character right so he tells michelle this and then he also you know earlier he talked about megan and continues to talk about her and the whole, like, you know, bioweapon, and, and it could be Russia or the Martians, and mm-hmm. that it's not safe to go outside and whatnot. All of that's coming true. Mm-hmm. But there's also the sense of, did he intentionally, you know, what what is he saying that is true, and what is he saying that's not true? Right. Because that is... because. What I think is really interesting is, so 
in the ARG, it is confirmed that Megan is his daughter, right? Yeah. But we later find out that the girl that we're told is Megan is not Megan. Mm -hmm. So who is like, did he actually accidentally hit Michelle? Did he intentionally do it? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the air is not healthy to breathe. So he's right about that. And he was right that it was either the Russians or the Martians. Mm -hmm. So what is it? Like, wh what is true and what is not? I mean, in all fairness, everything he says kind of is true to to an extent. Mm -hmm. Which I think adds to the horror of him as a character because you don't know what is true and what is not. Mm -hmm. Right. And then with him also being a complete conspiracy theorist nut nuthead, like, anything can set him off as well. Right. So that has, he, adds a whole nother layer of terror to his character. But he also has a soft side because right. the following scene after this, Michelle is standing in the living room with Howard as well. And Howard is going to have Michelle stitch him up from the wound that she gave him. Mm-hmm. Now, his reasoning is you're the one who did this, so like you have to do it. But that was also a prime opportunity for Michelle to attack Howard and, and kill him. But she doesn't. Mm -hmm. She she bandages him up. And it's a it's kind of a nice heartfelt moment between the two. Mm -hmm. And that's another scary part is there's actually legitimately nice moments in this right. movie between our characters. The the chemistry. And I think this is something that was brilliant for them to shoot in chronological order the chemistry continues to develop as the film progresses which is really nice because during this this intercut sequence of of the three characters intertwining with each other and, and, and interacting there's a two-month time span there yeah yeah and it's a really it is a nice moment just seeing like the montage of the characters just living together in this underground bunker, playing puzzles, listening to music, watching movies, all that. <laughs> it's so strangely nice, but there's this just sense of dread, like, okay, when is, when is this going to end? When is Howard going to snap, you know? Right. Because at the end of the day, it could quite literally be any moment. And that is, like I said, it's it's a ticking time bomb. And that's one of the scariest parts of this whole thing, is you know that he's going to snap. You know that they're going to do something wrong, and he's just going to go crazy. But mm -hmm. before any of that can happen the air ventilation system stops working, which is yeah. really bad. Yeah. I mean, if, if that stops working and they don't get it fixed, they will, they will die. <laughs> yeah. And so Howard sends Michelle up into the air ducts to reset the generator 
strangely not ever getting her to check on what was blocking the fire, which was a bit weird, but... Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) Which, so she gets to the ventilation system, and Mm -hmm. she shuts it off and turns it back on, and everything's okay. Yeah, but then she sees a little hatch with light. She finds, you know, a window, a window, sorry, that, you know, the bunker up into, you know, above ground. But then she notices a scratch on the window. She slides it open a little more to reveal the words help written on it. Which, this whole scene, this is where I would say the second act begins. Right. And this really gets intense. Now, originally, there's supposed to be a dead bird that fell on the window here. Yeah, but J.J. Abrams thought that'd be a bit too convenient of a jump scare. Right. And this film is already kind of theatrical. Um, That was something that John Goodman brought up, that it was kind of theatrical. Um, in everything, like the events and whatnot. So mm. I feel like adding that would have just added to that, but I also like the, right. you know, the subtlety that a lot of the theatrics do have throughout this film. Mm-hmm. She also finds an ear, a bloody earring as well, matching very similarly to the one in the photo of Howard's daughter, Megan, that he had shown her previously. Which makes me wonder how long ago she was there. Because there's right. also blood on the windshield of where her uh, nails were, like, getting bloody. So mm-hmm. I really want to know, like, did where did her body go? Where mm-hmm. is she at? Because clearly she had to be in that bunker. I mean, I feel like the answer for what happened to her body is kind of... You can kind of put two and two together from something later on. <laughs> well, why don't you explain what, what happens after this? Well, she t- she talks a bit with Emmett where she finds out that the photo that Howard had shown her previously of Megan was actually not Megan, but another girl that went to high school with Emmett named Brit- Brittany, a local girl who had gone missing about two years earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they realize that they cannot trust Howard and essentially spend the next 10, 15-ish minutes of the film trying to put together a makeshift uh, hazmat suit. So that Now, one weird thing is, so the director brought up that the VFX director added a mole onto both pictures to symbolize it was the same actress. Uh-huh. So was Brittany just so happened, like, did she just so happen to hang out with Howard the whole time? Mm. Or I, thought I, I was under the, imp- I thought the implication was that the second photo was actually the real Megan, but apparently that's meant to be Brittany. It's the same character. Um, uh, They went out of their way to make sure that it was clear that it was the same actress. Oh, <laughs> okay. I'm stupid so, now, like that, but that adds a whole nother level of like, is Howard like this child predator, or is he telling the truth and Emmett's the crazy one? 
Like I mean, how its whole this... goal in this film seems to essentially be, you know, living a living a life with you know a new family, a replacement family, or essentially just replacing his daughter. In this, right. in the current events of this film, using Michelle as as his daughter, with Brittany at once being sort of like the. <laughs> Megan Prime, I think, is what she's called in like the ARG at one point. I believe you are correct. Yes. <laughs> From this point, they're making the hazmat suit. Have a couple tense close calls with Howard, seemingly finding out about it in a game of charades, where he's actually just uh, he's just being Santa Claus. <laughs> right now, I do want to say so the hazmat suit they're making at one point was planned to be an actual like shower curtain um, that was cut up but because the material wouldn't like fold to the body proper they ended up scrapping that yeah and what i really thought was interesting was uh so during the whole charades it's a charade game right yeah i believe so um the first so first we get to see what Howard truly view how Howard views Megan or not Megan Michelle yeah which is like a little girl because yeah, cuz like Emmett's the word Emmett has is woman and he's trying to get Howard to say it so he's just pointing at Michelle and it's like Michelle is a and Howard's just like girl l- l- little princess uh kid uh, and just can't f- even fathom calling her a woman. Which is, that adds, I mean, that I think alone adds to the creepiness of his character, because at this point it's like, mm. okay, so you are like, it's it's very obvious where he is now mentally. Like, he, he he's incapable of viewing a young woman as a young woman. Mm-hmm. Which... Is really weird and perverted. I mean, Howard isn't really a pervert per se, since he's not really after her for any sexual desire. He just wants to live out his perfect family, perfect life with his daughter. That's all he wants, really. That we know of, because in all fairness, later on he does say, "Now we can do whatever we want." I I don't think I don't think the implication is that he wants a sexual relationship. I don't think that's the implication. Okay. I, I think it's just, I think it's just, we, we don't have to worry about him anymore. Right. I think that was the, more the idea there. Fair enough. Fair enough. So the next like five or so minutes, right? Five or so minutes is them yeah. developing the hazmat suit using duct tape and scissors and, and this whole, they had a scheme uh, so Michelle was up close to the door or in the air vents in, in the air purifier room. She took a shower. It could be, you know, she could have contaminated the shower curtain. Yeah. And so so Howard, Howard will dump the shower curtain so they, they can use that as a material. And it works. And they're developing that. Mm-hmm. But with the whole Santa Claus sequence, He's telling them that he knows what they're doing, <laughs> but also 
like is is playing almost mm-hmm. which is kind of demented like like he's literally playing with his victims mm-hmm. and that's something that so this movie the way abrams always proposed it was it's not the cloverfield monster that we know but there are monsters in it not necessarily what happens at the end but right. howard is the monster yeah and this film is I mean, entirely the is quite literally monsters come in many forms right and the movie is told in a first person perspective while being third person point of view it's all told from the perspective of michelle who doesn't know everything which is genius and that's where the cloverfield thematics are the same is this first person perspective of the monster that they cannot stop mm-hmm. which is very interesting that they mm. were able to link the seller concept with Cloverfield through that. Right. But yeah, eventually John Goodman, Howard brings them both out to, to help him move a barrel to a different room. He, when, once they've moved it, he opens it up and explains that it is perchloric acid, which can, melt a person down to the bone essentially contact right which this whole scene there's no music and the audio is very very quiet which right adds a whole nother level of intensity to this scene right and this is where he reveals that he knows they're planning something he and that he's found their tools throwing them into the acid while asking them you have one opportunity to tell me what you're doing now or else during and during this Emmett sort of takes the blame saying that it's all him he wanted to steal Howard's gun and that Michelle had nothing to do this with this which I've heard some people say how uh, Emmett was stupid because this left Michelle alone I mean in that situation with how intense that situation is whether or not it's stupid realistically you're not going to be unless you're an amazing quick thinker you're not going to be able to pull off something like amazing you know this is true but in all fairness michelle does have a lot of quick thoughts yeah but i mean even i want to say it was either trachtenberg or abrams who literally stated that michelle is the character we'd like to all think we would be in this right right rather than an actual realistic character in this situation. Whereas I feel Emmett is a lot more realistic here, trying to come up with an excuse to potentially save Michelle. Like, he doesn't come up with the best one, obviously, but in a situation where he's being interrogated, when you're in the stress of an interrogation, you're just trying your best to come up with something. Right, right. And I mean, it it does work. It it does work. And she, I in a way, I I think Emmett knew that Michelle could make it out, but he always couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to be fair, they did only have one hazmat suit. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it was always the plan to only have one person, and clearly, unless they killed Howard, 
which I don't think was ever their plan. They just were going no. to try and escape. It's it was always meant to, you know, somebody was probably going to have to die. Mm-hmm. And Emmett was not physically able to keep going, right? Because of his arm. So in a way, it was always set up to be Michelle getting out of there and Emmett dying. It just left Michelle to her own devices to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, speaking of which, Emmett is shot in the head by Howard. Which, this is about as intense. This is one of two gunshot scenes that, like, just, like, took me out of reality for a second because of how like, <laughs> intense it was. The other one would be the uh, Murray death in Joker. Right. <laughs> Both of those, it's like, whoa, okay, they're dead. Like, bam, dang. Like, yeah. wow. Oh, no, this is a shocking moment. I, I, and, I genuinely was not expecting Emmett to just die so suddenly (laughs) and what's even like better i guess better is following the gunshot like the audio warps like if you were right there in the moment right which just adds to it and you know michelle just like freaks out like Emmett just got shot and at this moment it's very obvious that michelle's one and only goal now is to get out as right. soon as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. Which... And we also we, re- re- reinforce how unhinged how it is with him just not caring that he's just shot Emma. Being like, it's okay now. It's okay now. You're safe. You're fine. He was going to hurt us. We're, you're, we're safe now. Right. And I believe the director did say that in Emmett's mind, he was hoping that he wasn't going to die. Mm-hmm. But he knew it was a possibility doing that. Mm-hmm. Which, this this gunshot essentially jettisons us into the final act of this movie. Yeah. So, do you want to explain what happens here? Mm-hmm. Well, the horror begins as John Goodman has now shaved his face. <laughs> <laughs> He's clean shaven, bringing Michelle an ice cream cone, or a, a bowl of ice cream, sorry, because you know, he wants her to be like his daughter, Megan. And you know, tries giving it to her, but she's not interested. She's looking at a photo of Emmett and you know, continues... Her plan of building a has, hazmat suit. When Howard comes back into a room to check up on her, she tries hiding the hazmat suit. But when a screw from the air vent that she tried to hide it in comes loose, eventually he discovers the suit. And this is where our, our sort of seemingly final chase begins. But Which, this isn't quite our last chase. This... This music is horrifying. <laughs> like this really the blood pressure goes through the roof during this with all this music. Mm. Should mention that the score is by Bam McCreary. Right. I was waiting to see how long it would take us <laughs> to, to say that. <laughs> Composer of Godzilla King of the Monsters, various other films like the previously mentioned Last Voyage of the Demeter, 
as well as Cloverfield Paradox, Child's Play, Play Remake, and a fair lot of other things. Wait, where was I? Uh, chasing. Oh, that's right. He tries chasing her around, like, and then she kicks the barrel of acid and knocks him down into it, melting off a bit of his face. But this going is for, also going where... for the hazmat suit. Well, right. What were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say this is also where seemingly Howard is taken care of for good, but that's not necessarily the case. No. Meanwhile, also, the acid is spreading to some of the electronics as well, starting a fire. And I think this is actually a good enough time uh, to bring up that in the original script, none of this was supposed to happen to Howard. Um, In the original script, before it got rewritten into a Cloverfield movie, Michelle was more of the villain. Um, She was mistreating Howard and Emmett was kind of like this antagonistic character, and Howard was actually the tragic character of the story. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. So they, they reworked the entire uh, relationship for each character mm. from that original script, which I think is really interesting. Hmm. And it's also worthy to note that, uh, well, actually, I'll bring this up after once we get to that scene. So keep going. Okay. Um, yeah, so because the fire is blocking access to the door to the airlock exit, she instead tries going through the air vent to get to the the like window, the hatch that she'd seen earlier with the help. And while she's in the air duct, Howard gets back gets back up and tries stabbing a knife through to get at her, getting very, very, very close on multiple occasions. But eventually, his, I think, she kicks his leg into the knife, or it kicks his hand into the knife, or something. So what? So what happened is after the the vat of acid fell on him. She went back to get, so she ran out, knocked the vat of acid onto him, went back, got the hazmat suit, went, was going to go into the the air shaft area, and he came back, so she had to throw the shelf that Emmett knocked down earlier in the film onto Mm -hmm. him, where she escaped into the ventilation shaft, where Mm -hmm. he started stabbing his knife into to try and stab her then -hmm. eventually through one of the grates he took it out and grabbed michelle's foot where michelle then basically kicked his hand until it hurt so much she had to let go okay now during the whole resurgence of howard following his acid trip (laughs) um (laughs) he there was actually a version of this movie that was rated r because this was a lot more gory. There's a lot more blood involved that made it so Howard was was a bloody mess. But that was going to get them an R rating, which at the time, Bad Robot had not done an R-rated film yet, and they wouldn't until Overlord, so they weren't ready to do that just yet. I see. Hmm. Eventually, 
Following this, she puts on the hazmat suit, breaks, destroys the lock on the hatch, and escapes the bunker. Which, during this, there is some shots of inside the mask. Mm-hmm. Um, which, interesting thing is, all the shots in the mask are quite literally every shot they were able to get that was usable. Um, <laughs> the director specifically said down to the very frame. I guess Damn. the gimbal that was set up for inside the mask was not very well done. So every once in a while, it would like fall off. And <laughs> so they just had to use whatever takes they had and use that. So they they went down to the very last frame they could possibly do before it would be messed up. Mm. Which I think, I mean, it just goes to show that they they really tried to push this budget as far as humanly possible. I mean, even the director of photography wanted to use as little VFX as possible um, throughout the film. Which, I mean, I think works. Um, But it's also worthy to note that the entire film was shot in an amorphic widescreen. But following her exit of the bunker, they changed lenses so that it would be a wider shot. So that it would feel bigger and that, like, you could breathe. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do IMAX cameras, but they didn't have the budget to do that. So the IMAX idea, unfortunately, went unused. I see. Eventually, while she's walking around trying to get to Howard's car, she ends up ripping a hole in her makeshift hazmat suit, causing her to panic and try and duct tape it up but after doing this she looks up into the sky and notices there's some birds flying around and they're and they're okay so then she's like wait a minute and like any good prometheus character takes off her mask that's how it, it works that's how it works you know yeah and she realizes that the air is in all reality. It's fine. It's been fine the whole time. But then she climbs on top of a car and spots a ship. Howard was was right all along. The Martians are here. Which, following this, they drop something into the fields, which we later find out is a mutant space worm, which was specifically mentioned by Emmett earlier as something that Howard had spoken, which adds more to the foreshadowing of this movie being genius. Mm-hmm. I I love the, the foreshadowing that this movie does have. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Howard talks about like there being like these patrol ships essentially just going around. And this is essentially, this is essentially that what he described. Right, and it's basically the idea that uh, Pacific Rim also explored, which was you send out the big weapons first, take out the major population, and then you come in and exterminate the remaining populace. Right. You've won, which is the same process and idea that the aliens basically have um, here. And there is a bioweapon, the spaceships spray this toxic gas that can kill people. And we learn about that. So 
one of the vehicles that Michelle tried to get into, the alarm starts going off, right? Mm-hmm. And Plus, the aliens had also been alerted to her present when the bunker kind of blew up from the fire. Right, right. And so Michelle's hiding in one of the little farmhouses. Yeah. Trying to avoid the mutant space worm. Mm-hmm. And eventually she finds the keys to the vehicle that is honking as Leslie has died in the in the house, in the little farm area that she's in. And she finds her keys and turns off the alarm to that vehicle and is left alone from the alien spaceship or from the mutant space worm. Yeah. Now, like any good Prometheus character, she just starts <laughs> walking around. Yeah, as you do. Only for the mutant space room to locate her and her have to run to the truck and save herself. Mm. Now, the space worm's fast enough to catch up to her and do a Mon- Mongolian death worm to her helmet that she currently has on <laughs> from the bioweapon that was just attempted to be used on her but she's able to get the space worm out of the vehicle and close the door door. this is where the spaceship ends up picking the truck up to eat her Mm -hmm. which during this i'm pretty sure there's a clover roar i'm pretty sure i heard a clover roar during this scene it sounded similar. I don't think it was quite the same sound, but it's definitely similar. There now it's not all the roars, but one of them is. I'm mm. I'm sure of it. I'm sure that one it, of them it, is. It definitely sounds similar to the Clover Monster, but I don't think it was quite the same roar. At least not that I heard. Okay. So I think this is a the point where I do want to talk about this this part. I don't like this third act. I think this is a little bit left field. I don't know. I I think it's I think it's fun. I don't think there's anything too spectacular with it. I think there's some cool shots, like when the alien spaceship is like appears behind the house and it lights up behind that. I think that's really cool. But otherwise, I don't think it's a particularly spectacular sequence. It's it's cool to have some monster stuff in this movie. I I, I genuinely I knew the ending had like the alien spaceship. I didn't realize the alien spaceship was actually a limit, living organism, and that there was like another like little quadrupedal alien creature. So that was cool for me as you know seeing it for the first time and not having gone in genuinely not expecting for that sequence to be there Mm -hmm. and certainly not as long as it went on but at the same time it's kind of it's fine it's a decently well done sequence i just don't think it's as strong as the rest of the film well so here's here's kind of the biggest problem and I think this is because they did rewrite a script where Howard was the, the hero. Howard basically just died because he was a little bit of a weirdo. 
Like, everything he said was true. He said there were mutant space worms. He said bioweapons, aliens from outer space. If they gas you, you're going to die, fall mm-hmm. out. All of that is very much true. Mm-hmm. It's very obvious that at one point, Howard was definitely in the right the whole time. So why does he, like, in a way, it's like, just why kill him, right? So having him be right the whole time, in a way, kind of lowers the the stakes, I think, because, well, maybe it increases, it just, it makes it feel like Howard was a collateral, I guess. Mm. Because, I mean, he did save them. I mean, yeah, but then there's the whole thing of him, like, you know, having the trying to make Mich- force Michelle to be his own daughter and the heavy implication that the girl that he'd previously kidnapped had probably been put into that acid barrel. This is true. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's a little obvious that Howard was rewritten. I think the the cons of the Howard character feel lesser than than what was actually the pros of his character. Mm. I um, just feel the issue is that it the just the aliens even though they the stakes are higher, the aliens themselves just don't feel as much of a like a tangible or real threat as Howard does. Kind of just because, you know, they're just Kind of underdeveloped, I guess, monster. I don't know if underdeveloped is really the right word, but they're just like relatively mindless monsters just hunting hunting her down because they want to hunt her down. Where Howard is, you know, he's human and there's something a lot more terrifying about Howard, partly because of John Goodman's performance, but also the character writing with Howard of being this unhinged, crazy man. But everything that Howard got angry about, he kind of had reason to. I mean, the stuff about, like, the aliens and, like, them, you know, with, like, uh, what's his name, Emmett, plotting to take his gun, that's reasonable, sure. Mm -hmm. But, like, Howard getting completely unhinged at the dinner table, you know, because he but, was annoyed. Yeah, but he he you know, in all fairness, and all he Michelle and held her against a wall. Okay, so there. Okay, but in all <laughs> fairness, I will say this: she was intentionally antagonizing him. I'm not saying that was reason sure. for physical contact, but she was antagonizing him on purpose. Sure. Throughout the uh, film, yeah, Emmett yeah. and Michelle both antagonize him, which when you have somebody who is not, you know, mentally equipped to to handle being antagonized, that's not a good idea. You're basically asking for trouble. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that Howard is is a good character because it's very obvious he's the antagonist, but I also think that the writing kind of plays him off as this really bad guy, but in all reality, 
he's just doing what he's got to do to survive. He's a survivor. That's well, what he minus is. Minus kidnapping a girl two years prior. That is true. <laughs> the, but but that, that I don't is, think that part's defendable, really. But even then, that part is a little gray because if you go off of what the director said, that is Megan. If you go off of what Emmett says, that's not Megan. Hmm. I mean, the so, ARG also suggests that he was kind of a, a bit of a obsessive, yeah, you know, because he was obsessive with like his conspiracy theories and doomsday, it kind of led to him being a bit of an abusive father as well. Right, right. Megan. So I I don't think you I don't think you should really be making an argument to But I think what I, <laughs> the, my point what I'm trying to make here is it's very obvious his character was rewritten. Once you know that, you can see that like yeah Michelle antagonized him Emmett kind of helped Michelle antagonize him. He wasn't really in the wrong, minus the few parts that, you know. Minus the kidnapping. The kidnap, the whole Megan part that admittedly does also have its weird flaws between the director and, and the actual production, what it says in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, if you take out the Megan aspect of it, I mean, he didn't really lie about anything. <laughs> Maybe he was reckless and wrecked into Michelle. We we don't know. We we don't know. Um, I mean, the film leaves it kind of that kind of ambiguous. Whether or right. not you want to interpret that as him doing that intentionally, or if you want to take that take him at his word. So I I just. I think that's where a lot of my problem comes in is just this film kind of it's not as bad as what I would say paradox is, but this film very clearly has a rewrite or two from different people. This film had a total of four writers. If you want to include JJ and the director who definitely had some hand in, in what the, the, the final script was, that's a total of six writers touched this film. Mm hmm. Which is a lot. Mm -hmm. So with that, there is definitely going to be some problems with the writing and the cohesiveness of, of everything. Sure. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like, I, what we are provided for the film works. But once you start looking at it outside of just Michelle's point of view, it does start to fall apart. Mm -hmm. A little. Maybe not so much with the Emmett, but with the Howard aspects, I think it definitely falls apart. And the fact that he's right about everything kind of makes it so the aliens aren't... In a way, it's not as bad, but it's also not as good. You know what I mean? Like, he was absolutely right the whole time. So mm -hmm. he's been prepping for this the whole time. Mm -hmm. So in a way it's like, okay, so he wasn't crazy, but then there's also that part of, Oh, well now we have aliens. So now we have to fight off aliens with bioweapons. So how can we, you know, fight that off? 
So I don't know. It's there's there's a little bit of a plot error, a little bit of a writing error here that I'm not a huge fan of. I don't entirely agree with you, but like I I do agree. I I don't want to say this sequ- this end sequence of the aliens is necessarily anticlimactic because I do think it's a f- I do think it's a fun and enjoyable sequence and it is a good climax for Michelle's arc as well with her you know she she starts off the sequence running from the aliens but eventually when push comes to shove in the and the what you call it the ship you know grabs her truck she accepts that she has to face this thing quite literally head on makes a makeshift Molotov cocktail with some whiskey in a car that was established earlier and blows it up. (laughs) Right. And following this, she, you know, the truck falls back to the ground. She gets out and gets into the other vehicle and drives off. Yeah. We see well, the mail. We see the mailbox with a sign saying that this is Ten Cloverfield Lane. Which that was a last minute addition. They weren't going to yeah. have that, but they decided to do that last minute. I mean, it was. I'm pretty sure Dan Trachtenberg just suggested it as a joke. I don't think it was like, him. I think it was one of the VFX oh. supervisors. Oh, I, I read. I know. I read that someone suggested it as a joke. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a joke. I think it was one of the VFX supervisors because they found out that they could easily CGI the mailbox in, have her ah. knock it down and fall with the right. name. And they thought it was actually a good idea, so they kept it. <laughs> I see. Which following this, we see Michelle change channels on the on the radio, which a radio station comes up with somebody reporting that uh, they are winning. Humans are winning against the aliens. But we still need help. But we still need help. You can, and they tell her two places, one for refugees, one help fight. Mm -hmm. And she's given a choice at the last minute to either go stay safe or go fight. Mm -hmm. Which she chooses to fight, which is, a stark contrast to what she did at the beginning where she ran away from her problems. This time she's facing them head on. And as she drives off into what is the battlefield, we see a larger ship in the skies via uh, bolts of lightning. lightning. And with that, the movie concludes. (laughs) So... It's worthy to note that the director pitched a idea to the studio where the movie was going to be titled Below. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be all about being underneath the Earth. And there's going to be a sequel called Above, which was going to be the fight on Earth. And then he pitched a third movie titled Beyond, which would take him into space fighting the aliens in space. Huh. But the they Those didn't like happened. that. Huh? Those never happened. <laughs> yeah, so what happened is they wanted to keep it a Cloverfield movie um, for that marquee value. And right. so they they shot down his idea and that 
kind of ended the whole idea of doing more. He did say he would like to do a sequel, but he also thinks that the the ending we have is a good ending for the narrative, and it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily need one. It's no, kind I of like, like this, a. I feel this works as a standalone story. I agree. I agree. I think it. I think it could work both ways, right? I think both are valid endings or continuations. Yeah. But the same, in the same regard, this film really isn't about the aliens. So I feel like it right. not having a sequel is perfectly suitable, if not maybe even better for the film. I agree. Like that's not because re- that really isn't what the film was about. Right. The less aliens, the better, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, this movie is only like 80 minutes long. It's not, well, 90. It's like 98. Yeah, something like that. Which is not very long for a a movie from Hollywood. Mm. And I'm kind of appreciative of that because it definitely makes the movie move by a little faster than expected. Right. Yeah, I feel like the runtime is is like, Pretty solid. I don't feel like there's ever any scene that's wasting. There's never really any wasted scenes in this movie. I, like. I agree. I think everything is well utilized, even though with the writing problems, I do think it it's its pace is very well kept. And they yeah. had to edit a lot. Um, they had to edit a lot of stuff out that slowed down the the film. Um, there was actually a, a like two minute sequence where uh, John Goodman's character talked about uh, the Battle of Val Valnesia, mm-hmm. and that was actually that scene was so impactful for the filmmakers that they actually had the uh, the shooting title that. Yeah, but that ended up getting cut because that was like a full stop on the whole film. Mm-hmm. Um and like when it comes to even storyboarding, they only storyboarded the the alien fight sequence. Everything else they just shot what they could on set and moved on. Oh, wow. Um kind of like how Spielberg does that. Spielberg is somebody who doesn't do uh any storyboarding. So it'll be it's it's one of those things where I I think the aliens make it slow down. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they necessarily make the film slow down. It just kind of feels like a bit of a different movie. Right. I also think it kind of takes away from that Twilight Zone-esque feel. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing about the Twilight Zone is you don't get explanations, right? Hmm. In a way, I would almost like it if maybe the whole final alien fight sequence was gone and she just got in the car and drove off and maybe in the clouds you saw a spaceship. I feel I was kind of thinking as you were saying that perhaps it could work maybe maybe a little better if instead of having that sequence, you just have her driving off with the implication that maybe the aliens are real and kind of leaving it up to the audience's interpretation. I feel that could be more interesting and sort of leave you with that mystery feeling. 
similar to a Twilight Zone episode of sorts. Yes, I and that's my whole thing is like, if we're going Twilight Zone, it would work better, I think, if they did it that way. Mm-hmm. Leaving it up for, and like maybe the, the spaceships could have been a little less clear that they were alien. Maybe, maybe it would look like something um, that could be human, but also not, you know? Kind of like that, what, what, what am I looking at? Um, was this a bio attack? Was he crazy? Mm-hmm. What is that? Is that a Russian aircraft? Is that an American aircraft? Is that a Martian aircraft? Like leaving it up mm. for interpretation, I think is a great idea they could have done. But they didn't. I mean, were the aliens even in the original script? I believe so. I believe okay. so. Cause like it because like you could almost like you could almost like make the assumption that or like speculate that maybe perhaps this final sequence could even be like could be studio mandated. I I don't know if it is. I don't like I couldn't find anything really talking about the aliens present in the original script because the synopsis that I was given able to find just didn't talk about them at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I I take it that if they are in the original script, then it probably isn't like a studio mandated thing, but it, it could, or you could speculate that with just how the scene sort of feels and plays out. Right. Honestly, what this film does right is the claustrophobia and that combined with the beautiful lighting, Barry McCreary's amazing score and John Goodman's power and presence. That oh, is John where Goodman the film is absolutely the probably the strongest aspect of the film for me. And then the te- and then the tension brought by ten- Barry McCreary's score just compounds compounds that. I like I feel like his performance and that score elevate this film completely. Wholeheartedly agree. This this movie's strengths are in everything. I personally think the strengths come from everyone but Michelle partially and the third act. I think the third act and some of what Michelle's character does is where it lacks, but that's uh, about it. I feel I feel Michelle is fine. She's fine. She's fine. I agree. But I don't think there's anything really spectacular going on with her character. She has a simple arc. You know, she she's like wrong about some things, but like in her situation, can you really blame her? Right. So, you know, I for her it's pretty mundane. And you know, I've I've made my gripes about the the third act and and Howard's writing, but I do think overall this is a solid thriller. Yeah. Now, I think the worst thing about this movie is the whole Cloverfield thing. Mm-hmm. Like the studio mandate of of making it a Cloverfield movie, I think is a little. It doesn't need the Cloverfield name. 
I mean, I think it did no. for the box office, but I think for a narrative speaking, like narratively speaking, I don't think it needed anything to do that. No, there's no real good reason for this film to be in any way tied to Cloverfield. <laughs> yeah. Like there's some thematic similarities, but like the film just does not need it. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. Mm. Because I feel the issue is, like, okay, I feel like with, like, an anthology franchise, it's kind of hard, like, I mean, it's in a better, Cloverfield was in a better situation than, say, Halloween was in, where, like, the first two films were about Michael Myers, because the studio, you know, mandates for Michael Myers to come back, and then John Carpenter and, I don't remember, what, John Carpenter and his wife, Gail Ann Hurd? No. Yeah. Was it? Right. No. Uh, I remember. I'm trying to remember her name. Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill. That's go. her name. Yeah, it like they you know, Halloween was supposed was always intended to be an anthology franchise, but obviously that failed when Halloween three bombed. I feel like you know, Cloverfield's got a little bit of an advantage where there wasn't already a sequel, but at the same time, making a film and title and giving the title a connection to Cloverfield for that brand recognition kind of can give the wrong impression, I feel. Like, even without specifically titling it Cloverfield 2, like... Unless, like, the first film is already an anthology film, which Cloverfield was not, kind of gives off the wrong impression, I feel. I don't know if necessarily... I feel like with an anthology franchise, it it kind of is better if you if the first film is actually an anthology film rather than having all, like, the sequels be different anthologies. Does that make any sense? So, from what I'm understanding, you're saying that anthology series work better on a smaller story form than a bigger story form. Yeah, kinda. Because, like, when when you make a sequel to a film, you kinda... There's an expectation that said sequel from the audience that the said sequel will will be similar in some way and continue. Typically it'll continue the story or feature similar characters and all that sort of deal or a similar monster in the case of most monster movies, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone kind of expects a Godzilla sequel to feature Godzilla or at the very least some, some other giant monsters, you know? Right. So yeah, I mean, to be fair, this film does have some monsters, but it's neither Not of the Clover. monsters that were seen in the first film. Right. Not even the parasites. Right. So, And I don't think there was yeah. enough connection between the two movies for there to be a valid argument. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, there's no... Like, the only real, like, major connection is the... Slusho cameo, which, which Slusho appears in like almost oh. all of Abrams' work, down to like uh, Star Trek. 
Right. And I think Star Wars, too. I think it appears in Probably. Star Wars. Probably. <laughs> so that's more of a J.J. Abrams thing, not a Cloverfield thing. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Right, so... And then, like, yeah. then the other connections are, like, in the ARG with Takurado's, like, connections. Which I will forever say, and, and this is this is kind of my final stance on, on the whole Cloverfield ARG and, and just in general expanded universe stuff. If it's not in the movie, it's not worth... arguing with. Right. I, I like, think I think if it's... Having that expanded material is interesting, and I think it generally works in Cloverfield because they are not... They are interesting aspects that sort of build the world, but they are not integral to the story, which is why I think they... At, at least for these two films, I don't know about Paradox, but at least in these two films, I feel like it works. They are supplemental. They yes. they just add another layer, another little layer to the story, but the story does not in any way need them. Right. And that's the big thing is like, so as an example. <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to bring up, I think. I'll bring up two. And you tell me if it's either of these two are the ones that you're thinking of. So in Godzilla King of the Monsters, the novelization says that Kong does not leave the island. There's a whole moment where Kong is on the island fighting the skull crawlers from leaving the island. In the movie, Kong's monarch icon, clearly the tracker, clearly has him off the island. Mm-hmm. Now, you could chop it up to a VFX mistake, but still, in, in the movie, canonically, Kong is off the island. But in the novelization, Kong is not. And they make it very clear in the, in the novelization he is not. Now, a bigger one for me is in Kong, Kingdom Kong. It's established that the Iwi are safe and they're not dead. And the Iwi still exists. And Kong is their savior. Mm. In Godzilla vs. Kong, it throws away <laughs> everything, everything ever established in any of the MonsterVerse movies or expanded materials or the novelizations. So none mm. of it's canon, none of it makes sense, and it it's an awful movie. See, nothing matters. It's just a big dumb monster movie. You gotta remember that. And you know, there the is... filmmaking advice you learned from Adam Wingard in the Godzilla vs. Kong director's comment. And there is the Godzilla versus Kong cash <laughs> for the episode. It only took me two and a How half did hours. I know you were going to mention Godzilla vs. Kong. Because I, I it's I'm... it's on my bingo board. It only took me two and a half hours. So honestly, I don't know what it, so I mean my whole thing is like it's cool. Cloverfield especially, it's cool to have that expanded universe stuff, but in all honesty. It's kind of irrelevant, I think. Right. To it, the, I mean, I'm glad that I, I guess in some respect, I'm glad that the film, you know, gave me a reason to check out another original movie, which I think was part of Abrams' goal, where he said, you know, audiences are always complaining about we're just getting sequels, we're not getting anything new, so let's give you something new. It, but let's get your attention to something new with the Cloverfield brand, which I can kind of, I can respect that. I, I can respect that. 
Right. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I I agree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> so Rex, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Not really. Okay. I think I've said my piece. In that case, I'm going to quickly go over the casting crew. Um, mm-hmm. There's some few noticeable things here to bring up. Director Dan Trackenberg mm-hmm. uh, was he directed an episode of the Amazon show The Boys. Yeah, he's the directing, first episode. <laughs> correct. He is directing an episode of Stranger Things season five. And Rex, you probably know him as the director of Prey. Yes. You I mean, are, hey, I also watch The Boys. I love you that. Strike show. me as a boys as a boys watcher. Yeah, I'm Australian. They basically speak in my language. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> the credited writer, Damien Chazelle, worked on The Last Exorcism Part 2. He was the director and writer for La La Land, director and writer for First Man, and director and writer for the hit blockbuster Babylon. Oh, yeah, that was that was a big hit, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. J.J. Abrams in the box office. J.J. <laughs> Abrams was the producer. Up. Yeah, he he did. J.J. Yeah. <laughs> Abrams is the producer. He was the producer and I believe director for Super 8. Or he was writer and director for Super 8. Mm-hmm. Director of Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness. Director and writer for Star Wars The Force Awakens. And Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. He was also the producer on that film. He was mm-hmm. producer of Cloverfield, Star Trek Beyond, The Cloverfield Paradox, and Overlord. He is writer and producer of Cloverfield 2.4, as I've dubbed it. He was executive producer on Star Wars The Last Jedi and is a producer on the live action American adaptation of Your Name. Oh. Lindsay Weber, the other producer produced Star Trek Beyond, The Cloverfield Paradox, Overlord, and the upcoming American live-action adaptation of Your Name. As for your... Oh, and for your composer, you have Bear McCreary, composer of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, Battlestar Battlestar Galactica, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Call of Duty, Vanguard, specifically the Godzilla vs. Kong event he did as well. Oh, that's right. He did do that. The Cloverfield Paradox, and Colossal. As for your casting crew, you had Mary Winston Winstead as Michelle, who was in, get this, The Ring 2, the unrated edition, <laughs> The Thing, The Cloverfield Par- uh, Files, and Birds of Prey. Mm-hmm. John Goodman, who played hey, Howard, you're was... Forgetting, you're also forgetting that she was in a movie called Kate, which features a cameo from the Godzilla Hotel. Oh, does it? Yeah. Oh, sweet. And Jim Kinnemore is in it. Oh, peak cinema. Yeah. And there's and there's even message from Space Galactic Wars in it. <laughs> Interesting. You have John Goodman playing Howard, who was in Chud Matinee, Speed Racer, Kong, Skull Island, Transformers The Last Night, and Transformers Extinction. Mm-hmm. John Gillard Jr. as Emmett, who is in the movie Underwater. Susan Cryer as Leslie. 
and Bradley Cooper as Ben, who was in Midnight Alley and played Rocket the Raccoon in the Marvel movies. <laughs> and with that, I'm out of cast and crew. All I can really say is that I'm I'm terribly disappointed that you did not bring up John Goodman's ten seasons of of Roseanne, given from oh, almost with... all the show. You know, there's a Godzilla toy. This is true. And the Connors. And the Connors. That's so true. I don't know if the Godzilla toy is in that. I never watched I think that. it is. <laughs> I think it is. Oh, good. This is true. He also was in Monsters, Inc. and Monsters University and Monsters at Work, which I guess we count because it, it's Monsters. <laughs> I guess. Sure. If you want to count that, don't expect us to ever cover any of those. Amen to that one. <laughs> so with that, I, I have a question and mm-hmm. then we can wrap things up here. Okay. Where, so which one do you prefer Cloverfield or 10 Cloverfield lane? I, I, I think I prefer the first Cloverfield. I mean, slight bias. I like, I like giant monsters. I like Clovey himself from the original. And while, you know, I, I love the performance that, John Goodman is giving. I also just think that the first Cloverfield is a really, a really easy movie to watch. It's short. It's sweet. It, it's suited. It's it's kind of like I don't want to say a roller coaster because I feel like that's almost that kind of comes across as an insult. I would say. It I does. guess it. I, I guess it kind of is like a roller coaster since. I feel like its biggest flaw is of the first one is the character writing isn't uh, well. It's the script is certainly like the weakest aspect of the film. I feel like, whereas the found footage gimmick and the and the actual tension is its strong suit of that first film. But yeah, hmm. what I'm just trying what I'm trying to say here is I just find the first film a bit more enjoyable. Right, but I still did like. I I still am. I'm glad I watched the Ten Cloverfield Lane. I've been I've been wanting to watch it for a while, so I'm I'm glad I finally checked it out. So maybe I'm I'm maybe I'm a little more pretentious than I thought it was because <laughs> I put Ten Cloverfield Lane as as I liked it more than than Cloverfield. I think I, both are, I think both are quite quite good movies. Speaking on a filmmaking standpoint, I think 10 Cloverfield Lane is more of a director's film than 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 Cloverfield. I just I love the thought that went into specifically the set design and mm-hmm. some of the dialogue that paid off at the end. I love stuff like that. Yeah. So for There's me, I like that and pay off in the film throughout, honestly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like little highlighting of like little objects that'll come into play later. So I like that, and honestly, like for me, Cloverfield 2008 is kind of a difficult watch at points. How so? I just, I don't know. It's it's like you either pay attention and you get to enjoy the exciting moments, or you don't pay attention, and it's basically just, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, with shaky cam the whole time. Uh so for me, I don't know. I think I think Cloverfield has a little less to offer than Ten Cloverfield Lane. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have a giant monster, which does give <laughs> it some some brownie points. 
Yes. But I I just I think I'm gonna have to go with ten cloverfield ten cloverfield lane on this one. Fair enough. So with that, I guess we'll cover the third and currently final movie next September. Yeah. And we talk about the Cloverfield Paradox. Hmm. Hopefully by then Cloverfield 2.4 is out, so we either cover it when it comes out or the following September. Or at least we or at least hopefully we have an update on it. Right. We haven't had an update since what, December? I mean at at the this current point in time I kinda until the writer's strike is over, I kinda doubt we'll hear anything. Well, it <laughs> it was already done. It was planning on filming. So there's no writing mm. left. Mm. I guess I guess that's true, but it, it's probably know. on to the Act, point. Actors strike, you know, VFX unionizing might impact it a little. Yeah, we're about to see no movies from Hollywood ever again. Yeah, I mean, hey, at least foreign cinema is going to get a chance to shine. This is true, and and even even crazier. Actors and writers in the near future might actually get decent wages. Compensation for their work. Maybe. Just maybe. This is true. (laughs) This is true. Well, Rex, I think we've hit the moment where we share in the most noblest of podcasting traditions. Do you mean... Self-promotion? I do mean self-promotion. So why don't you let the lovely people at home know where they can find you? Well, 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 dear listeners, you can find me on YouTube at Rexino, on Twitter at Rex underscore Xenomorph, and on Instagram, Rex underscore Xeno. And lastly, if you want to check out some of my writing, go take a look at the Tokusatsu Network. And as for me, hello, my name's Elijah. You can find me... On YouTube at ET13 Productions, on Twitter at ET13 Productions, or on Instagram at ET13 Productions. If you'd like to check out my writing, go to kaijuramanmedia.com where I've posted some web articles, or you can purchase some of our magazines. Most recently, issue 10 is up for pre order, and there are still a few copies of issue 9 left as of this recording, so head on over there and purchase those. You can also order the digital copies of Issues 1 through 9, where I've worked on all of them. Besides that, you can also check out my writing at the Giant Bug Cinema A Monster Kid's Guide on Amazon, a book compiled of reviews for various monster movies that feature giant bugs. And I got to write an article on Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. So if that's something that tickles your fancy, go check that out. Besides that, you can find me on the Monsters with Attitude YouTube channel, and you can check me out at the Monsters with Attitude Facebook group, where I post all of my most recent acquisitions. I'm also one of the co-hosts of Kaiju Weekly, a weekly weekly kaiju news show that covers all the news from Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, and everything in between. You can find that on the Kaiju Ramen YouTube channel at Kaiju Ramen. But besides that, if you'd like to help support the podcast, don't forget to write us on iTunes that boosts our ratings and helps us get recommended to more people just like you. If you don't have an Apple device, which I don't blame you, I don't, that's actually a lie. 
I'm reading this off of a MacBook, so yeah. But you can raise on Spotify now. That's something they do. If you want to stay up to date with all things Kaiju Conversation related, follow us on Twitter at K-A-I-J-U underscore C-O-N-V-E-R-S. If you don't have Twitter, you can follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. If you're like me before podcasting and you don't have any social media, lucky you. You can email us at kaijuconversation at gmail.com, all lowercase, all one word, you know the drill. And as always, we'll read your reviews on air for everyone to hear. We also have a Teespring store. Eventually, we'll have original artwork on there. But until then, you can sport our awesome logo on a t-shirt or maybe even a coffee mug. If you'd like to chat with us, check out our Discord server full of others that have similar interests to you. Recently, in our general one chat, we had a conversation about the recent reveal of the real life Mazer cannon that apparently is <laughs> showing up in uh, the self defense force in Japan. So it's it's a great community full of great people. Highly recommend it. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you can be notified anytime we upload a video. We sometimes post exclusives to the channel like bloopers or for episodes or minisodes talking about news or other subjects. We also have an interview with Mechagodzilla designer Jared Kurchevsky on the channel. I probably butchered his name and I'm so sorry. A huge thanks to Rex for editing all of these episodes and all the other content we upload. His links can be found in the description below. Along with Rex, we'd like to give a huge thanks and shout out to Danny DeManna of the Godzilla Novelization Project for his amazing vocals on our theme song. You can support him by following him on Twitter at Danzilla93 underscore GNP or visit his website, GodzillaNovelizationProject.com. And a huge thanks to Grattan Conwell from the podcast Giant Monster BS for composing the music for our theme song. You can support him by following the podcast on Twitter at GiantMonsterBS or on any podcast platform under the name GiantMonsterBS. And with that, we're going to wrap things up here. So thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, please remember, life's too short to not talk big. Bye, guys. Bye. We are set. We are in debt. There's nothing to sweat. Life's too short now, baby. Now, baby, we love those kaiju, baby, and you will too now.